You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. My opening greetings, uh, whenever I'm with believers anymore, come, uh, comes from the land of Pakistan, where I was visiting once. And a man in the majority culture dress came up to me, put out his hand, crushed my fist, and he said, greetings to you in the name of the Most High One. Now, when you're in Pakistan, you do not know who is the Most High One. And he finished it out and said, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friends, brothers and sisters here in beautiful Savannah, greetings to you in the name of the Most High One, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to be back here at CBC um, Savannah. Uh, it's been about five years, and both your pastor Bill and I have aged at the same speed, not, not at the same rate, uh, and I'm so glad uh, to see this wonderful, dynamic um, leader who uh, was so humble before Christ when we were together at Dallas Seminary many, many years ago. Now, I know that he introduced me as having taught him how to preach. Now, don't blame me for everything, you know, that, you know. Uh, I taught him introductions and the body of the sermon, not the conclusion. That's why it takes so long. And uh, it's great to be here, Bill. And every leader needs four qualities, love, humility, wisdom, and courage. Most of the time, I have love, humility, and wisdom, but no courage. Many times, I have love, humility, and courage, but no wisdom. Sometimes, I have love, wisdom, and courage, but no humility. But the greatest of these is love. When I was with Pastor Bill last night, I noticed that he loved you. And that's the greatest gift that a pastor as a shepherd can give to his people. What a joy to be here, Bill, and uh, especially here in Savannah charming, trendy, all the way from topographically challenged North Texas where everything is flattened and yet something has grown in a desert. My son, Ravi, actually is the pastor of Grace Church in Espanol in Greenville where, Lord willing, we get to go tomorrow, South Carolina. And as we were praying together this morning, my habit is to pray with him every Sunday morning before he preaches. He said, that's fun, Dad because I have Tom Fowler preaching at his congregation ever so often, and Bill has me preaching at CBC. Isn't that a nice, nice um, way of exchange? But it seems like Bill did a great job, uh, and uh, I, I think it was John Maynard Keynes who said, education is the, the incompetent teaching the incomprehensible to the indifferent. And sometimes students escape and still do a fantastic job, and I'm delighted to be here. This is Thanksgiving Sunday. I've been hearing about how the pilgrims have such tremendous foresight that they put both Thanksgiving and football on the same day. And uh, perhaps you know there is a secondary marginal team called the Dallas Cowboys who have not been doing very well. They might as well succeed, so they'd be the, the darling of the nation. And uh, uh, Irma Bombeck is the one who says uh, it takes 18 hours to make a Thanksgiving meal and you consume it in 12 minutes. <laughs> Roughly the time that spreads across the halftime, which is not a coincidence, and then you go back to watching the game. But it's a big week in front of us. Uh, 
you should think about this question. Somebody asked, please tell me exactly what you do at Thanksgiving. What do you do at Thanksgiving? You give thanks. In order to focus your attention for the week and perhaps for the rest of your life, if you have a Bible accessible, please turn with me to the psalm that we responsibly read earlier today. Psalm 67 is a psalm which reverberates with blessing where the evocation is thanks, but then the implication is significant. Psalm 67. During the turn of the last century, not the 20th, but the 19th century, the most famous astronomer known was a man by the name of Lowell, Percival Lowell. He was so well known for his theory that there were water channels on the planet Mars. And when an Italian astronomer noticed some kind of lines on the planet, they said it confirmed his theory. For the rest of his life, he squinted into the giant eyepiece of a telescope in Arizona, mapping out the lines on the red planet Mars. Since he was terrifically distinguished, no one ever dared question his conclusions. In fact, they've sent NASA all over to find any residual water in the planet Mars that cannot find lines of water and channels and canals on the planet. They decided to figure out what Lowell was seeing, and ophthalmologists have actually named a disease after him. It's called Lowell syndrome. That when Lowell was thinking he was seeing the planet Mars, all he was doing was mapping out the blood vessels in his own eyes. And he thought he was looking way out there. It used to be that the word world went to the edge of our noses, but we could get pretty self-focused. And that's why we have selfies. They call it selfies because narcissism is too long to spell. <laughs> Somebody said, this is my iPhone. It's not a Wii phone. It's not an R phone. It's not an us phone. It is my iPhone. The ubiquitous I. Psalm 67 is a prayer of blessing. It liberates us from what I'm going to call the selfish self, the transcendent service. If we look at the top of the psalm, it says it's a psalm, a song, much like our tremendous worship team shared with us. Let me tell you a couple of points about the psalm before we get into it. The psalm is actually a song. It's like it's got verses and choruses. It is also structured in a particular way in the Hebrew where people who did not have written stuff like you and I, me, we could easily remember. It's like a phone number which goes one, two, three, four, three, two, one. If you look at the psalm, verse one and seven are similar, two and six are similar, three and five are identical. Verse five, uh, four is the center of the psalm. Another comment about the psalm, you will not find the personal pronouns I, me, or my. 
just like the Lord's Prayer. It's us and we. Some commentators call this a spreading circle. Others call it a ripple effect. It's sort of a thanksgiving ripple because God has blessed us. If you look at verse 6, the first stike says, the earth has yielded its produce. So I'm talking to a genre of people who sense that the earth has yielded its produce. If you're not sensing the blessing of God, it's not going to translate into thanksgiving and from thanksgiving into response. So, the psalm basically says, God's blessed you and me so much that we become the first link in an aggressive chain contagion which reaches into the whole world. You're the first link in this contagion, almost a virus in this positive sense, which reverberates across the whole world. I'm going to give you little phrases to put on the side margins of your Bible. Verse 1 and 2 form the first stanza. Write the word global knowledge. Global knowledge. Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is praying for God's blessing on the believing community so that there'll be global knowledge of His saving ways. Look at verse 1. It's a prayer. He says, God. Now, we can stop this message right here and be enough just in that first word to impregnate us with God's heart. Many of you know that the book of the Psalms is like the first five books of Moses, divided into five. In the second book of the Psalms, where this particular Psalm falls, 42 to 83, the preferred name for God is not the national covenant name that Israel used. This is a different word. That's the word Lord, as some of you will have in your Bibles, or even capitalized. This is the word God, and by saying God, he immediately says Something about his God. Because for the Hebrew, when they named, they did not name for convenience, but for character. I know we name for convenience as to how the initials look on a baggage tag. He's talking about the God who created all, who relates to all who sustains all, who will judge all. To this God, he makes a threefold prayer. First part, God be what? Gracious to us. What is a thrilling, distinctive of... Uh, your conviction, the faith. God be gracious to us. 
you know, grace grates against every sensitive fiber in my body which says I need to be transactional with God. Anytime you feel you've got to negotiate, manipulate, obligate, compel God to take a second look at you, you've fallen from grace into manipulation. That's why the most famous definition of grace is unmerited favor. We did not merit it. We just sang about it. His mercy is bigger than our sin. Or as Charles Spurgeon used to say, God is more anxious to forgive than you're anxious to sin. Not because he diminishes sin, but because of the height of his grace, evidenced and demonstrated at the cross. God be gracious to us. Unmerited favor, but there's another dimension to grace. We call it unconditional blessing. Most people operate with God as if I meet these conditions, God will bless. God says, no, because I've already blessed you, go meet the conditions. Unmerited favor, unconditional blessing. There's a whole theology which says God's grace is unlimited enablement. God enables us to please Him. So when the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through the one who strengthens me, that is divine enablement for all my accomplishment and yours. God be gracious to us. God, please bless us. Wow. That's the second part of that prayer. Please don't ever stop asking God to bless us. It is not wrong to ask God to bless us. It is wrong to ask God to bless us and keep it to ourselves. That's a complete different story. Like the farmer who prayed, God bless me and my wife, my son John and his wife, us four and no more. That is not permitted, but don't stop asking God to bless you. Sometimes in a swing from what we call prosperity gospel, we go the other way. Don't ask God to bless us, and we begin to think that everything is what we generated and caused. What have you that you have not received, the Apostle Paul says? Your health and strength and daily food and much more. God be gracious to us. God bless us. The third phrase, God cause your face to what? Shine upon us. Now, we don't understand the word shine face very much. We, have, we don't use it very much. I think the sentiment is pretty clear. For example, uh, the face identifies the person. I had a set of twins at the church that I served, identical in the front, okay? And one day in great desperation, could not keep the name straight, I said, brother, I know your, your brother's brother. And he said, yes, brother. And for the sake of his pastor, he grew a beard. And I didn't make, confuse them again, make the mistake again. Because face identifies the person. You've probably seen two people who look the same from the back till they turn around and you say, hey, that's different. By the way, many of your elders look same from the back today because all of them are wearing gingham checks and skinny trousers. I, 
And that's the way they know I'm a guest speaker, you know. <laughs> but face deeper than that identifies how a person feels about you, his sentiment. You know, a happy face from a sad face, a thankful face from an angry face. You know, a face in teenage rebellion. Or you ask your husband how he is, and he says, fine, I'm barking like a seal at you. It's his face which tells you that not everything is fine. So when the author says, God, please cause your face to shine upon us, he says, we want you to be so pleased with how we handle your grace and your blessing. We want you to be delighted because you've blessed us with grace and more your blessing. Salvation plus. You've given us so much that this Thursday, when we sit across the dinner table and the turkey goes in low earth orbit and gravy becomes the national beverage in a sense of compulsion in eating in patriotic duty, God. You've done so much for us. To anybody who heard this first verse, their minds went back to the great ironic blessing of number six, which says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. But what happens is that this psalm does not end at verse one. This is not a prayer of selfishness. This is a prayer of response, of action. Look at verse 2. So that your name, because you blessed us and given us salvation and more, so that your name may be known on the earth, your way, your salvation among all nations. That's why God's blessed you, you and especially me. The reason God's blessed us is so that his salvation may be known in the nation. Global knowledge. Yesterday we took a, an Uber ride to the airport. It was young Robert who was driving me. Eventually I uh, get to anonymously share the gospel with these guys. And I said, do you have a meaningful Thanksgiving Christmas habit? They said... He said, no. He said, do you have a church habit? He said, no. Oh, yeah, but I go to the Unity Church down the road ever so often because I like prayer. And prayer seems to be a universal practice. And I said, Robert, it's not prayer, but prayer to whom? Because the person who receives your prayer must be able to receive your prayer and to respond to your prayer. I told him about the Lord Jesus. I said, he's the only one in all of history who said, till now, you have not asked for anything in my name. The only person in history of all comparative religion who said, in my name, ask. 
So the chemical composition of the person who receives your prayer is important. I have a friend who was looking for Tylenol in the middle of the night, and he took diarrhea medicine. <laughs> medicine is universal practice, but the composition of the pill. So that your name, the name of the Lord Jesus, may be known on the earth, his salvation among all nations. In the psalm, we have the three primary words in Hebrew for the world. That your way may be known on the earth. That's the first word, earth. This earth is a very small piece of property, real estate. It's only 248 million square kilometers. You get on a plane, and you can be anywhere in the world in about 24 hours. Your bags may not get there, but you'll get there. <laughs> My secretary once gave me a shirt which said, the rings around Saturn are made up entirely of lost airline baggage. Some of you know the name James Irwin, Apollo astronaut, very, very committed believer in Christ. I heard him share that as he headed to the moon, that the size of the earth began to shrink. The size of a basketball, soccer ball, baseball, golf ball. Then he reached into his pocket. And he said, uh, wow, he said, it looked like this from out there, just a little blue marble. And then he said, it suddenly hit me that everything that was precious to me was on that little blue marble. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, everything that's precious to him is on this little Blue marble. Everyone who's ever lived lives right now and will ever live. Four thousand years ago, during Moses' time, there were only 108 million people in the world. Three thousand years ago, we went by 12 million over a thousand years. 12 million. That's a small town in China. The next thousand years, we went from 120 to 138 million, about 18 million people. That's a small town in India. The next thousand years, we went from 138 to 275 million. That's 137 million over a thousand years. Now, I have an app called the World Population Clock. It reads about 7.6, 7.7 billion people at this point. Let me tell you how big a billion is. A billion is so large that just over a billion minutes have passed from the Lord Jesus till now. Just over two billion minutes from Moses till now. That's how big a billion is. That your name may be known on the earth Your salvation among the nations. 
Now, we don't know how many nations around the world. It depends on who you ask, whether it's the International Olympic Committee, the United Nations, AT&T, or Coca-Cola. But he says, because he's blessed you and you and especially me, that in our response of thanksgiving, that his salvation may be known on the earth. There'll be global knowledge. Verses 3 and 5 are what we call choruses in this psalm. They're identical. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's the third word, by the way. Earth, nations, peoples. People stand for ethnicities, or how people actually divide themselves. It could be by race, caste, color, gender, whatever. Language, for example, about 6,500 languages in the world. Only 200 are going to actually exist at the end of this century that is active. My language, my mother tongue, is called Tamil. It is the longest continuously spoken language. For example, Hebrew went out and came back in and so on, but Tamil continues. These, these are vibrant languages, and nuances in these languages are rich. You know how we tell Americans, right, that they're monolingual. Most. Many of you know that races are a way by which people distinguish themselves. And when they make those the source of their identity, there's all kinds of complex problems because identities develop ideas and ideas develop repercussions and consequences. Three major races in the world. Mongoloid, the Chinese world, the Negroid, the African world, the Caucasoid. Most of you belong there. There's a fourth, there's a fourth one called the Texan humanoid. <laughs> Let all the peoples, all the peoples, all, 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 praise you, throw praise at you. So I want you to put the word global praise on verses 3 and 5. Global praise. He's calling the nations, the peoples, all to praise you. About three, four weeks ago, I had the privilege of being the fastest growing church in the world. Started 13 years ago with about 20 people. Today, each service has about 20,000 people. The first service in the morning is at 5.30 a.m. How many of you want to come at 5.30 to church? And most of them are first-generation converts to the Christian faith. And you see God massively working, except they are marginalized by their previous religious convictions and, and environments and family. 
Many of them are suddenly economically terrifically poor. The doctor says, you need to get 10 days of antibiotics, and they only buy five days of antibiotics, because in the second or third day they get to feel better, and then it comes back, the infection, they go to the doctor, and the doctor yells at them, I told you 10, how come you only took it for five? So the church has decided that they need to have a pharmacy uh, replete with medical personnel, doctors and pharmacists and medicine. They say, you buy the first five days, we'll give the next five days of medicine. And in this particular country, they practice cremation for the dead. But once you become a believer in Jesus, your family does not want you anymore, let alone cremate you at your death. And one of the biggest obstacles is the fact that nobody is there to give them dignity at their last day. And so the church has begun what is called a burial program. $40 gives them a little box and a small piece of property and their massive burial teams, we're talking about 100, 120,000 people in the church. And then the pastor found out it was difficult to relate to that many people and yet wanted a personal touch. So he gave everybody an access card. If you come into the church, you have an access card. They have exact numbers. 20,235 people were there in the third service. If you don't have an access card, you go into the guest area where about 2,000 will go to each service. But also in the access card is the date of birth, you know. And so everybody who gets a birthday cake, a slice of a birthday cake, and there are about 500 people on the cake baking team and 500 people on the cake delivery team. And some lady in a retirement home says, you know, my kids forgot that it was my birthday, but my pastor did not. <laughs> or somebody in a dormitory in a hostel or uh, in a college says, you know, my roommate didn't know it was my birthday, but my church didn't forget it. Let the peoples praise you, God, let all the peoples praise you. You should hear them sing. You hear 20,000 people sing. It gives you energy even if you're completely depleted, jet lagged, and about to speak. They wanted me to speak on the problem of evil to new believers the supremely challenging topic, but that's what the pastor wanted me to speak on. I'm not going to speak right now. I know you want the answers, at least some direction, which leads us to the second stanza. It's found verse 4. It is the center of the psalm. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. He's calling for global joy, not only global worship, uh, global knowledge and global praise. We'll come to global worship in just a moment, but global joy. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Wherever I go, it seems like the psalmist is wrong. There is no joy.
this morning in the New York Times. There was an, uh, a conversation between five brilliant scientist thinkers talking about gene editing. Would you like a replica of yourself, especially when you can't handle your own self right now? What about artificial intelligence? What about living longer? Big question is, if I live longer, will I be happier? Well, because people today are living longer than what they used to do and be, and now they're not happier, or in fact, they're worse off. What it can deliver, what it cannot deliver. Because all of us this morning, we mourn with those in California. 10,000 plus structures. In paradise lost. Over 1, 1,200 people, they said this morning, whose names are missing. Friday morning, I heard on the radio in Dallas, so we're putting out the list of the lost because the lost don't know we're looking for them. And I said, how much like God? The lost don't know they're lost, let alone that God is looking for them. There's no joy. The Lord willing, I'm going to be in Haiti. I was there right after the earthquake, about 300,000 people dead. Fortunately, they decided that the next part of verse 4 was critical to their joy now. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The next part is actually in future tense. For you will judge the nations with righteousness. You will guide them with equity. He's talking about a future moment when everything is going to be corrected in the human race across the whole earth. That while we are under his overall kingship right now, there is a material earthly resolution of every theological question you have asked, every relational problem that you have faced. Every existential contradiction you've experienced. There is going to be a day when he comes back. And so the Haitians told me, there is no systemic hope for our country. We've sent billions and billions of dollars into this country. Or the other time I was in Kolkata, India, at a Kasik conference. And the committee said, there's no hope. Politically, governmentally, everything is corrupt. The only hope is when Jesus comes back. That is our hope, my people. When he comes back, you will judge. You will guide. But until then, how will they know that they can have hope and joy now if they didn't know about what is going to yet be happening in the future? Unless those who are blessed, that's you and myself especially. Become the first link in this chain contagion which reverberates across the whole world, the earth the nations, 
the peoples they can sing for joy now. My daughter-in-law the other day was saying, it's quite interesting that during this time where there's so much gender fluidity and everybody is being accepted, we have the highest challenges to sexual immorality. It's rather intriguing. We've got values, we've got help, we've got hope for everybody, including you. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, if you've not experienced grace, you just happen to be on a Thanksgiving whim with family, I welcome you to understand and receive grace. You will have joy far more than circumstance middle of your greatest fears and tears. My wife and I have cried some loud, loud tears, but somehow deep-rooted inside, it, there's a confidence that things will be righted and corrected by Him. Global knowledge, global praise, verses 3 and 5, global joy, verse 4, the last stanza is found in verses 6 and 7, right? The words global worship. The earth has yielded its produce. That's the only statement in past tense. There are some versions which have turned it into a prayer. It's not so. It is already true that the earth has yielded its produce. I'm looking at people who have already benefited from God in salvation plus. To an agrarian society, the earth with dew would be proof that God had blessed them. Because He has blessed you, if you don't sense God's blessing, don't worry about the psalm or with thanksgiving or your response. But if He has blessed you and you sense an overwhelming deep gratitude in your heart, Here's how it goes. The next part of verse 6, God blesses us. Verse 7, God blesses us. Why? So that the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth may worship Him, may fear Him, global worship. I know we are going through some very important times Strategic inflection moments in both personal, national, cultural history. That's how it's going to be. But there's a deep-seated sense that God has blessed us in this auditorium. Would you agree? You can talk to me. <laughs> Would you agree? Yes. You know, the most blessed people in the world are not Americans. The most blessed people in the world are not Christians. The most blessed people in the world are American Christians. I'm looking at them. Yakov Smirnov, the Russian comic, has a Water Country series. He says, man, when I first came from Russia into America, I was confused by all these grocery stores with so many options. I used to go down one aisle and said, orange powder, pour water, you get orange juice. The next one was milk powder, you pour water and you get milk. And the next aisle was baby powder. You just put water and get babies. <laughs> water country. 
That's why you come back and you kiss the ground from a trip. That's why you have lines waiting as U.S. embassies all over the world. God blesses us, but why? You may have heard of the rooster cock, which thought the sun rose every day to hear it crow. God blesses us not for our sake, but through us, for their sake. God blesses us so that the ends of the earth, important phrase, where the Lord Jesus picks up in Acts 1 in his final repetition of his commission, end of the earth be my witnesses. So God blesses you in Savannah, Georgia, and the ends of the earth. Fear him. You're saying this doesn't work, speaker. You're talking to the wrong man. 300 years ago, two young men, 24 and 29 years of age, came from Germany to southern India, made every mistake that a missionary should never, ever dare to make. I'm standing here 300 years later as proof that God bless us and the ends of the earth will fear Him. Because God thinks and works large and long and inner and outer and small and big and deep and white, constantly thinking and working all the time. God blesses us so the ends of the earth fear Him. I know that Pastor Bill said I'm a missionary partner. Uh, I'm a bivocational servant of Christ. I'm a teacher at a seminary. But because he's blessed me so much, I want the ends of the earth to fear him. I deliver God's word globally, and we multiply proclaimers locally. On the evangelist side, the premise is simply this, that the gospel is not good news if it gets there too late. On the church health side, it's simply that the pastor's health affects the church's health, and the health of the church affects society's health. And the Lord has allowed us, we are at the end of a 10-year human capital campaign. 2010 to 2020, at this point, is running a little faster than we anticipated. And I want to thank you for it. Here are the four big realities of the world right now. One is the world of people. The world of people is just large. Everything we need to do, we've got to make it scalable. Second is the world of the Christian faith. A third of the world will say they are believers in Christianity, but they're not necessarily eternally safe. They call them nominal Christians. Today there'll be 50,000 new baptized believers. 186,000 or so believers, new believers, but 50,000 new baptized believers, which is by a German researcher. Listen now, please, very, very carefully to this presentation. We need a thousand new pastors every day for 50,000 new baptized believers. If you have congregations of 50, we'll never catch up. 
So not only do we need scale, we need speed. <laughs> Here's a third reality, the world of the church. Between 2016 and 2020, there'll be 5 million congregations, and they're ahead by 0 0.200,000, 0.2 million right now. Just as your spirit soars, here's the big downer. Up to 70% of all new congregations will fail within the first year. Would you invest in anything which has a 70% chance of failing within the first year? So we need durability and sustainability. The fourth is the world of pastoral leaders. Only 5% of all pastoral leaders have been trained for pastoral ministry. The others will be winging it today. Even trained ones make mistakes or have not read the manual. You heard of the Lion Air crash in Indonesia, of one of Boeing's latest planes. Trained pilot. Would you like to get on a plane where the pilot is not trained? The 2.2 million pastoral leaders, 5% trained for pastoral ministry. Reese's addressing the deficit, We're reducing the world deficit of untrained pastors by 5% by 2020. So we deliver God's word globally. I personally deliver it, and we multiply proclaimers locally because the ends of the earth may fear him. George Steiner, in one of his books, says, I do not know how to put this world together. Many of you know this is the 100th year of World War I. He's talking about the torture prisons in Treblinka, and he says, uh, I don't know how people can be tortured in Treblinka while people in New York are making love and going to the movies, eating ice cream. He says, the only way I can try to manage reality is that there are good zones on the planet and there are bad zones on the planet. My brother, my sister here at CBC Savannah, the good zones on the planet, we get to be in those zones at the moment because we are blessed with salvation and more. Salvation is the core and more is the reality. God's blessed you and you and you and me. So we become the first link in an aggressive chain contagion that reaches into the whole world with global knowledge, global praise, global joy, global praise, and global worship. Remember the rich young ruler? He didn't have running hot water, multiple cars, climate control rooms, and he's called a rich young ruler.
I don't know what that makes me. 